around about uh, 2,000 years before the time of Christ, uh, Abraham was met by God and was promised that uh, through his offspring all nations would be blessed. Through your offspring, says God, all nations on earth will be blessed. And from that moment, really, in the story of the Bible, there is the, uh, the, the abiding question, how's it going to happen? How are all nations going to, to, to be blessed? And by the time we get to the Gospels, we uh, learn an important part of that answer. The blessing can come to all peoples through Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sins of all kinds of people everywhere. No longer did you need to uh, follow one particular uh, uh, um, religious system of, of sacrifices or belong to one nation. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of of all peoples and simply trusting in him uh, is all that is necessary for us to be blessed now and uh, eternally to be blessed when God creates a new heaven and a new earth populated with people from every tribe and nation. But there is another part of the question that is not answered in the Gospels. Okay, so Jesus has achieved that salvation he is, he is, he is, it's there in history, offered. How are people going to hear about it? How are people going to actually be able to respond to that uh, good news of Jesus' death and resurrection? And it's the book of Acts that answers that part of the question, that question that began all the way back in Abraham. How are all nations going to be blessed? The book of Acts describes the spread of the church till it's reached all the corners of the known world of, uh, of the first century. And it gives us some answers about how the gospel spreads across barriers to new nations. One very important answer that we must have in mind uh, all the time when we are studying uh, Acts, is that God will do it himself. God the Father will do it, um, says uh, Luke, who wrote, uh, uh, who wrote the book of Acts. Jesus makes that very, very clear and in his resurrection appearances to his disciples uh, in, in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus talks about... Um, um, what my Father has promised. Or in Acts uh, 1 verse 7, he, he speaks to the disciples, it's, he says, it's not for you to know the times and dates that the Father has set by his own authority. God the Father is in control of this world. God the Father is in control of his plan to spread the good news about Jesus throughout the world and uh, he keeps that in his hands. Uh, interestingly, Luke, um, a couple of times, makes it plain that uh, God the Son, Jesus as well, is also responsible for the spread of the good news about his death and resurrection. 
Not only did he die on the cross and rise again, but he rules now over his universe. And he is overseeing the spread of the gospel. In, in, right in the verse, first verse of Acts, Acts chapter 1, Luke says, in my former book, he's talking about um, uh, the gospel, which we call Luke. In my former book, book, I wrote, he says, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The gospel was only what Jesus began to do. Acts is about what Jesus continues to do. Now from a throne in heaven. And um, we will see in just a moment that Jesus himself appears at some crucial moments. This chapter is one of them. Acts chapter 16 Um, Luke records that they were prevented from entering a province called Bithynia by the spirit of Jesus. God the Father will spread this gospel, God the Son will spread this gospel, but actually most prominently in Acts, God the Holy Spirit spreads the gospel. One 19th century commentator even uh, uh, called this not the Acts of the Apostles, but the acts of the Holy Spirit, and it's very true in a sense. Of course, foundational in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 2, that great day of Pentecost when uh, the Holy Spirit comes down and uh, the uh, disciples speak in all different tongues, a sign that the Holy Spirit's central, or a central element of the Holy Spirit's work, is that he will spread the good news across barriers of language and nation throughout the world. And again and again it is the Holy Spirit who takes the initiative, who uh, um, moves Philip in in Acts chapter 8 from one place to another to witness to the Ethiopian eunuch, who who, um, um, comes upon a man called Cornelius and gives uh, gives Peter undeniable evidence that the gospel was meant for Gentiles as well as, uh, as well as for Jews. Or in Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit it is who sets aside Paul and Barnabas to go as missionaries to new regions. The Holy Spirit takes the initiative again and again in the book of Acts. God the Holy Spirit will complete God's purpose to spread the gospel throughout the world to bring blessing to all nations, says Acts. And we must always remember that. We mustn't ever forget that. Both as we look at Acts and as we we live out our lives. It is God's project to spread the good news about himself and Jesus Christ. And whatever role people have in it, it is only as instruments, as we'll see in just a moment, in God's hands. But there is, of course, lots of material in the, in the book of Acts which makes it plain that also people do, are involved, vitally involved in it. All sorts of people. People from uh, all sorts of tribes and nations in Acts chapter 2. Um, Luke uh, focuses down, though, in, uh, in Acts, mainly on two apostles He speaks a lot about Peter in uh, uh, large parts of the first half of Acts and then he comes to focus more and more on Paul and it's Paul, or Saul as he's called uh, at the beginning of his uh, his life that we are going to be looking at over the next, uh, next few weeks. Don't forget it's God's work. 
But don't minimise the fact that God uses people. And one person who he clearly used was this man, Saul. We need to ask a uh, a question as uh, we get uh, into uh, the life of this man then. A few questions to help us to, to locate him and to understand him. Who was this man, Saul, who we've read about in Acts chapter 9? Let me tell you a few things about his, his circumstances, first of all. Saul, Paul, was a Jew. He describes himself in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, as a, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a very Jewish Jew, a man who had studied uh, his Bible, what we know as, uh, as the Old Testament, a man who knew it inside out, a man who was, uh, 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 who was uh, fanatically committed, in fact, to serving the God of the Bible. He was born, though, not in Palestine, uh, he was born in Tarsus. Tarsus was, um, let me uh, uh, show you, this is a picture from the, uh, the New Bible Dictionary. Tar- Tarsus was a large town in the province of Cilicia, up there in the north-eastern um, corner of the, uh, the Mediterranean. It was a significant city. It uh, probably had about half a million people in it in, in Paul's day. It was a flourishing um, Roman city, flourishing commercially, it was flourishing intellectually and culturally. It was a centre for the arts. Uh, Paul was, uh, was born into that um, overwhelmingly pagan environment. He was born, interestingly, a Roman citizen. In Acts chapter 22, uh, Paul uses that fact to, to good effect. And uh, he reveals, actually, that um, it it is quite significant that he was born a citizen. You could, uh, in uh, in the first century, you could, in certain circumstances, pay for or uh, be honoured with becoming a citizen uh, as, uh, as a result of what you had done. But it was a special privilege, actually, to be born a citizen. That must have implied that either Paul's father or grandfather had uh, um, done some great service to the the Roman Empire so that he, from the day of his birth, had a particularly special status in the Roman Empire. A citizen. Years before, that had only been residents of Rome that had been allowed to be citizens. In Paul's day it had spread out a little bit but it was uh, by no means a common honour to be a Roman citizen. Paul, at some point in his early life though, moved. He moved to Jerusalem. We don't know quite when. Some people suggest uh, it might have been when he was very young. Uh, It seems more likely that he uh, spent most of his childhood in, in Tarsus and then moved to Jerusalem when he was at um, reasonably advanced school age. We learn elsewhere that he was trained by the great uh, Jewish teacher Gamaliel, and uh, he says himself in in, uh, Philippians chapter 3 that he was a Pharisee. This was a man who had um, 
uh, the best of pagan experiences and the best education he could possibly get in the Old Testament, in the Bible. Very, all of those things about Paul are really quite significant for him and will be throughout his life. It's important for us to appreciate actually that God has his hand on our lives long before we are Christians. He ordains the circumstances of our lives. And he has ordained the circumstances of your life. You may not be uh, that pleased with all the circumstances of your life. But the Bible again and again shows in the lives of God's people how God uses the particular events, the particular circumstances of our lives for his glory. And if you're a Christian here this morning, he has done that and he is doing that for you. That's uh, Paul's circumstances then. Something as well we need to uh, see about his character. First thing uh, that's probably worth uh, mentioning is Paul was very intelligent, both before and after. We have already hinted at that because he got an education under one of the greatest teachers of, uh, of his day. Clearly a privilege. He, uh, as well, after he was a Christian, continues to use his intelligence. We find him confounding his opponents, arguing with them, persuading them. He was uh, bright. He was a man of great, dogged perseverance too. Again, both before and after he was converted. So before he doggedly uh, persecutes the church. Afterwards, he doggedly perseveres in spreading the gospel. He was a man too of passion before and after he was converted. In Acts chapter 9 verse 1 we saw something of that passion before he was uh, uh, converted, didn't we? Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's uh, disciples. But um, that passion is still there. Sanctified by the Gospel but still there in Paul after he was converted. He describes his agony of concern for his disciples. He, descri- he describes passionate longing for those he loves. Ardent love for fellow Christians. He was a massively intelligent, dogged, passionate man. And God actually didn't change those characteristics with his conversion. God very rarely changes our fundamental character when we become Christians. He sanctifies it. So Paul, whose passion led him to murderous threats, had his passionate character sanctified, still just as passionately now concerned for those he loved in the Christian community. And don't expect God to change your personality either. Look for him to sanctify it. 
Look for him to, to rub off those, uh, those angles in your personality that lead you to sin. But to use your extroversion or introversion, your ability with words or your quiet thoughtfulness, your gregarious nature, or your ability to commit to one or two people. Expect him to use those characters that he has, characteristics that he has built into your life. That's the way he works. That's the way he's going to work in Paul's life. The big problem, you see, in Paul's life was not his circumstances or his character. It was the aim in his life. His aim was to suppress what Luke calls the way the church. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. We uh, find elsewhere that he says um, he wanted to force them to blaspheme. His His ruthless intelligence had led him that way. It was this logical conclusion. Jesus was not the Christ. Jesus was cursed on a cross. How could he be the glorious Christ? And therefore these people were heretics and heretics must be suppressed, even executed. His his dogged perseverance led him to go to the high priest and seek them out even in Damascus. Passionate nature meant that he was furious. His personality so far is bent on evil. What happened to him then? That's who he was. What happened to him? A very simple answer. He met Jesus. Verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Now, I want you to note, just for a minute, what what didn't change him. He was not changed simply by the force of an argument. God didn't send someone who was cleverer than him to reason him into the kingdom. Sometimes, actually, uh, there certainly is a place for argument, for persuasion. But whenever someone is truly converted, there is always something deeper going on than simply they have been persuaded by the force of a clever argument. It is a mistake, I think, that we make again and again to think that that what we need in order to see people become disciples, we need cleverer arguments, more wonderfully polished uh, presentations, uh, uh, a clearer ability to defeat people that are in the realm of logic. 
Now it is the work of the Holy Spirit fundamentally which changes people. It is the attractive personality of Christ which changes people. People in the end cannot be argued into the kingdom. Arguments can show people how reasonable and attractive Christianity is. Arguments can show people how, how weak actually their belief system is though they did not see it. But meeting Christ delivers us from darkness to light. Notice also, he was not changed because he became increasingly uneasy with the lifestyle that he was leading and finally had a, had a sort of psychologically imploded on himself. That was a very popular interpretation of what was going on with Paul in, uh, uh, in, in uh, previous generations. But there is no sense actually that Paul was at all ill at ease with what he was doing. He never suggests in his later descriptions of his life before he was uh, a Christian that he was uneasy with what he was doing. I think sometimes we miss how profoundly our consciences can be closed off before Christ meets us. I don't think we should do automatically expect that uh, people in the world out there are living with massively uneasy consciences all the time. Just, uh, um, just, uh, just about to sort of uh, implode in on themselves and, 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 uh, and, and give in to Christ. Some people do have profoundly uneasy conscience, a profound sense of sin. And the Lord can work with that. But that doesn't seem to be in the case for Paul. And it won't be the case for, for everybody. The key thing that has to happen to everyone is that they meet Jesus Christ. Now, of course, Paul's experience was unique. He, uh, um, he, even the other people who were with him didn't see what he saw. Verse 7, men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but they did not see anyone. God was preparing Paul for a unique role. He was preparing Paul to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, the Bible is very clear. Apostles had to have been with Jesus. Paul, in justifying his role as an apostle, says, am I not an apostle in 1 Corinthians 9? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? There is a sense that Jesus needed to visit Paul in a special and unique way to appoint him to a special and unique role. But, there is also a sense in which every Christian must have a personal experience of the living God if they are to be really called Christians. It's not enough just to believe. It's not enough even just to obey. The Bible uses all sorts of, of, of phrases and words to, to help us to understand what happens to people when they really become Christians. Just a few chapters on in Acts chapter 16, for instance, Lydia is described and, and uh, 
Luke says, the Lord opened her heart. Or Paul, in describing how the Ephesians became Christians in Ephesians chapter 1, says, you were, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. We must, we must love Christ. We must not just know about Christ, we must know Christ. We must ju- not just obey Christ, we must delight in obeying him. And that is a work that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. What happened to Paul? To Saul? He met Jesus. And he was never the same again. That is what must happen to us if it has not already happened to you personally, then that is what you need to pray for. That is what you need to seek. It is fine to know a little more. It is fine to obey and to to do what you know you ought to do. But what gives that life is the personal work of God himself so that we come to know the living God. What happened to Paul? What did he learn, this new disciple? I want to just show you a few things that he began to learn that will then work out in the rest of his life. And we'll see them coming up again and again, I think, in this series. The first thing he learned, the most obvious thing he learned, is that Jesus is is the Christ, the Son of God. We find him in uh, verse 20, preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. We find him in verse 22, proving that uh, Jesus is the Christ. The, that title, the Christ, meant the great Saviour that the Bible had always been looking forward to, the one who would bring these blessings to all the nations. And Jesus is the one. That is the central thing that Paul needed to understand, that we need to understand, that all of history revolves around Jesus. That all of reality revolves around Jesus. That all of God's plans revolve around Jesus. He is the centre of all things. He is the Son of God who reveals who God is in a, in, a, in a supreme way. He is the Christ who delivers us from death itself. But Paul learned more than that. He learned all sorts of things that relate to that central truth. He learned, fascinatingly, that Jesus dwells in his followers. Why are you persecuting me, says Jesus. And uh, Paul, understandably, is uh, a little bit confused. Who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus. Amazing, actually, when you think about it. Jesus is not saying, why are you persecuting my followers? But why are you persecuting me? Somehow Jesus now is so identified with his, with his people that, that to persecute them is to persecute him. And that, actually, that understanding, that vision of how Jesus now lives in this world, in his people, shapes the, the whole of Paul's understanding. It comes up again and again in his writings. 
he describes Christians again and again as those who are in Christ. Those who are absorbed somehow into the personality of, of Christ. He, um, he, he speaks of being a Christian as Christ in us. He describes God's church as the body of Christ. He says that our hope comes from being united with Christ who died but who rose again so that as we are united with Christ in his death so we can be guaranteed that just as he rose again we too will rise again. Our union with Christ is the, is the ground of our hope. He, speaks, he, he, uh, he shows us how our present transformation comes actually not through making greater effort and doing all, all sorts of, uh, of things but, but through Christ dwelling in us. And he says our purpose on this earth now is to be Christ's body, to be Christ's hands and feet. Everything about the Christian life actually for Paul is profoundly shaped by this union that Christ now has between himself and his believers. So close that the risen Jesus says to that persecutor Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is here. And although it's certainly true to, to perhaps picture him hovering invisibly amongst us, the union is closer than that. Jesus is here expressing himself in this body of people gathered together. Jesus lives on in the world through his church. We are the presence of Jesus in this world. Those are extraordinary truths and mysterious in some senses. Luke described what Jesus began to do and teach. In a sense, what Jesus continues to do and teach is through his church, in his church, as his church. Paul learned then that Jesus dwells in his followers, not just among them, in his followers. Paul learned too that God's way is not by power and status, but actually by surrendering power and status. It is extraordinary that the risen Jesus should be prepared to be persecuted by Paul. But that was what he was. And uh, Paul goes on to learn that he must accept that role for himself. The role of not being persecutor but persecuted. Not being powerful but being powerless. Not being honoured, 
but accepting dishonour. The first stage in that process seems to be him actually being ministered to by one of those despised Christians. In Damascus, verse 10, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore him. Uh, Ananias is understandably not very happy about this but God persuades him. Verse 17, Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised. Paul has to the final stage in his conversion is through the ministry of a man whom he, just a little while ago, was heading towards to put in prison. Paul will no longer use, uh, be able to claim status. He will no longer be able to use compulsion or power Uh, He will speak to kings, verse 15, but as a prisoner. He must identify with these persecuted people because Jesus does. And related to that, he must suffer. Ananias was told it, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, God says to him. And he suffered Immediate opposition, verse 23. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill Saul, but he learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. This seems to have been very significant for for the Apostle Paul, that he had to leave Damascus with the garbage He had been heading towards Damascus as the proud emissary of the high priest. He had been led into it, blinded and confused, but when his eyes were opened, it got worse. Paul describes this incident actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 33, as one example of one of the things that shows his weakness. I will boast in my weakness, he says. You can imagine how shocking that was to such a proud man. But he must be smuggled out in a basket over the wall. And that is the reality for us as well. Do not expect massive respect. Do not expect status. Do not expect to be able to coerce people into the kingdom. We must accept the life that Jesus led, despised and rejected. Actually, even he was misunderstood 
by Christians themselves. Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. That was the uh, thrust of his life after that as well, constantly being misunderstood. So, sorry, one last and central thing on those, those. Of course, he must take the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what he learned and that's what we must learn. That Jesus is the Christ, that we must embrace the life of Christ. That the gospel must go the far ends of the earth. What then for today? The question still remains. How will this blessing promised to Abraham spread in today's world across boundaries to all nations? Although Paul's experience was unique, you see, the basic pattern that he learned applies to us all. My question for you in 2005 then, is are you part of that great plan? Are you prepared to have your gifts and the circumstances of your life used by God? Have you met the living Jesus? and had your life turned around. Are you prepared to learn what it means to honour Jesus as the Christ who lives amongst us but is, and in us, but is rejected and eschews power? Are you prepared to be part of that great task? for spreading the gospel to all nations. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll be an Apostle Paul. Even practical gifts are greatly honoured in God's economy. God had his son spend most of his working life as a carpenter. Whoever you are, however God has made you, Will you use that for God's glory? Perhaps something to meditate before we return to the hustle and bustle of work.